Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. And the word of God reads as follows. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is it he is his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. Let us pray and give God thanks. And ask for his blessing and even his illumination this morning as we seek to understand and be more faithful to the word that he has revealed. Let us pray. Father, we do come once again humbly asking that you would, by your spirit, open our eyes that we would see Christ. Open our ears that we would hear Christ. Cause the word this morning to be a living word. A word that instructs our hearts. A word that challenges our presuppositions. A word that informs and even renews our mind. Lord, we know that you are able to do this and even more. We do pray that you would be willing. Do it for your glory, Lord. Do it for the good of your people. Come now. Holy Spirit, feed us. Feed us with bread from heaven. Feed us till we want no more. This we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you. Oh, wow, it's been... um, I think three weeks, hasn't it? Three weeks since I've been able to come and uh, preach in the family of God that's gathered here at East Point Church. And do know that I have missed being able to come and to see familiar faces and to open the Word of God with you. It seems like forever since I've been able to dig back into Mark and once again take our time, sweet time, this morning. See what the Lord would unfold for, for us as we complete chapter 12. We know that now Jesus is in Jerusalem the last week as it leads up to the crucifixion. We've seen the encounters that he's had in the temple, seen the encounters that he's had with the Pharisees, and the Sadducees and the scribes. We've come now 
to the end of his time in the temple. Jesus will no longer be teaching amongst the crowds. No longer will he be challenging the scribes and the Pharisees. His face is set for the cross. He's in the temple for the final time before the temple becomes absolutely positively irrelevant. Who am I? And what's my motivation? These are questions I do believe that most of us, if not all of us, have asked at one time or another. These are questions of identity, of of self-disclosure. These are questions that cause us to reframe and and reorganize and reevaluate our lives from time to time, do they not? Very few of us, I would dare say, are actually doing now what we actually thought we would be doing when we graduated from high school. And those of, uh, those of you who are preparing to graduate or have just recently graduated do know that there will be reevaluations. There will be repositionings. There will be reimaginings. What is your purpose? Who are you? What is your motivation? Questions of motivation and identity and and vision rise often in our lives. But such was not the case with Jesus. Such belongs to the heart and the condition and the minds of finite humanity. But Jesus always knew who he was. There was never a time of repositioning. There was never a time of reimagining. There was never a time when he sat down and asked the disciples, now remind me again, what is my motivation? While others struggled to accept his testimony concerning himself, Jesus always knew his purpose. He always knew his motivation, even up to this time here, even up to the time of his crucifixion. His disciples and and even those who would seek to kill him still struggled and had little idea of exactly who this Jesus was and what he had come to do even today, centuries after the resurrection. You would think that we would have a better understanding of who Jesus is, and yet many of us still, still struggle, still remain clouded and confused in our thinking about what the Bible says about Jesus. Just this past week, a gentleman I was talking to about these things. He told me, he said, you know, contrary to what most books say and contrary to what the Bible says, I believe that God is going to save everybody. In other words, contrary to Jesus' own testimony, Jesus is not going to judge or condemn anyone for their sin. 
And it may sound strange at, at first to hear a comment like that, but we need to understand that this type of thinking is more typical than we think. For most of us, for far too many of us, we want Jesus on our own terms. We are not, we are not really interested in what the Bible says about Jesus. We want Jesus to be what we want Jesus to be. We want Jesus to say what we want Jesus to say. We want Jesus to save us from our sin, but we don't want him to lord over our lives. We want him to get us to heaven, but we don't want him to order and direct our steps on the way. When we get in trouble, we cry out, Jesus, take the wheel. But as soon as he's navigated us through the trouble, we say, okay, Jesus, I'll take it from here. We want Jesus to just point us in the right direction. And we'll handle the rest of the navigation our ourselves. In other words, what we want is a God on call. We want a God on call. And if we've seen anything in our trek, in our trek through Mark, Jesus is not a Lord on call. He's a Lord over all. And he affirms this and he reaffirms this again and again. And even on his last day in the temple, Jesus affirms once again that he is Lord, that he is sovereign, that he is king. And there are no others. And he alone is God. On his last day in the temple, Jesus not only confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, but he also taught the people about who he is. He wants them to know. He doesn't want there to be any mistake about it. It's the last time he will speak in this way publicly and he affirms as he had affirmed over and over again, he is the son of God. And being the son of God, he is the judge of all. He is the son of God. He is the judge of all. Don't get it twisted. Jesus was born of Mary. He was in the line of David. But more importantly than all of that, he is the eternal son of God. You know, the Jews believed that the Messiah would be king. In fact, they believed that the coming Messiah would be in the line of David. He would be a king like David. He would be in the Davidic line. He would be a son of David. 
And as a son of David, as a king like unto David, he would come and establish Israel as it had been established in the days of David. The most powerful, the most feared, the most grand nation in all the land. They understood this. And so on Jesus' last day in the temple, Jesus does something very interesting. He questions their understanding and their interpretation of a key verse that taught who the Messiah would be in light of him being the son of David. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees had questioned Jesus. They had asked Jesus all of their questions and Jesus had answered them in such a way that the Bible says that no one else dared to ask him any questions. So apparently Jesus says, okay, now it's my turn. Let me ask a question. Let me ask a question. And he builds the question From Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Highly regarded by the scribes and all those in the know to be a messianic psalm. To be a psalm pointing to the Messiah. Pointing to Christ. Revealing who the Christ would be. He would be the son of David. He would be the Lord. And Jesus says, if that is the case, if the Messiah is the son of David, then how come David calls him Lord? Any answers? Does anybody have insight and understanding here in the temple among the learned? Tell me how it is that the Messiah being the son of David, David calls his son Lord. Taken straight from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 being the most quoted psalm from the Old Testament in the New Testament, but not just being the most quoted psalm. It is the most referenced Old Old Testament passage of Scripture in the New Testament, referred to over 30-some times. All pointing to the person and the work of Christ. And Jesus tells them, listen, David said, under the inspiration of Holy Spirit, that the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, come sit at my right hand. 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus here is making a point. First of all, he is saying, before I examine this text, I want you to understand something. David did not say this about himself. David is led by the Holy Spirit. David is inspired by God. This is what the scriptures tell us is the nature of, of scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, the Bible says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here is Jesus giving testimony to the nature of Old Testament scripture, even Psalm 110, that David spoke under the inspiration and power of Holy Spirit to make the statement where he calls the Messiah Lord. And this was the promise of the one who would be king in the line of David. And it is a promise that runs throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah gave this promise. Jeremiah gave this promise. Ezekiel gave this promise. So did Hosea and Amos all give the promise that there would come a Messiah, a king in the line of David, who would restore the kingdom of God and the fortunes of Israel. And yet David calls this one... Lord, Lord, now unless David and the Holy Spirit that inspired him is schizophrenic, Jesus says, if David called him Lord, how can he also be his son? Because I don't know about you, but I am not referring to my son. As Lord. I refer to him as a lot of things. But Lord is not one. This, beloved, is the mystery. This, beloved, is the majesty of the incarnation. This is the glory of Christ being born into the world. Jesus was Mary's baby, but more important than that, Jesus was Mary's Lord. This is the grand scheme of God and Jesus coming into the world. The Messiah would be David's son, but also, and more importantly, he would be David's savior. He would come in the line of David, and yet before David ever was, Christ is. Why is this important? This is phenomenal because this is the answer to the question that the Pharisees raised after Jesus turned over the money tables in the temple. They asked him, who do you think you are, Mr. Big Stuff? Who do you think you are coming in here, turning over our tables? Who do you think you are calling us out in the midst of all these people? Jesus is showing them who he is. After all is said and done, this is the answer. I am Lord of Lords 
and I am the king of kings. Because I am the one that David, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that the Lord God has said, come sit at my right hand. I am the one who has ascended down from glory. I am the one who very quickly will ascend up again to glory. I am the one who has all power and authority and majesty and glory. I am the one who came down from the right hand of God and I am the one who will go back there again. That's who I am. This is huge, beloved. This is huge. For Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms that he is king of kings. That he is the king of kings. That he would be a king. But his kingdom would be greater than David. And David and Solomon were big deals. They were huge deals. I mean, Israel was never more glorious, never more wonderful, never more mighty, never more secure than when David and Solomon were on their thrones. And here is Jesus saying in the midst of the temple, a greater one than David has come. A greater one than Solomon has come. He who would now reign is not just king, he is king of kings. But he is not just king of kings, he is Lord of lords. He is Lord of all. David bowed down and called him Lord. But not only David, So too did Abraham. Abraham was a big deal. And Jesus says in John chapter 8, you think Abraham is a big deal? Abraham has rejoiced and is praising God that I have come. Not only Abraham, but Moses. In Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, Moses was a big deal. And a writer of Hebrews says that Moses, being a servant in the house of God, has nothing on Jesus because Jesus is over the house of God. You think David is a big deal? You think Abraham is a big deal? You think Moses is a big deal? How about the angels? You think the angels are a big deal? These are they who do my bidding, who are at my beckoning call. These are they above all who know who I am. Is this not manifested in the ministry of Jesus? Whether it was heavenly or hellish angels, they all knew who the Lord of Lords was. They all knew who it was who demanded Worship. They knew who the anointed one of God is. It is Christ. Beloved, this is important. This is important because it is important 
that you know who Jesus is. It is absolutely critical that you know who this Jesus is. This is why the cross is so central and powerful and necessary. This is why if you don't get Jesus right, you don't get it right. Who died on the cross? It was not just the son of David. It was the son of God. Not just one who would be king. It was the king of kings. Not just somebody who would be Lord. It was the Lord of lords. That is why Paul could say in Philippians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you don't get Jesus right and who he is, then the cross is of none effect. The reason that the cross means what it means is because of the one who died upon it. It was the Messiah. The anointed one of God, the Lord himself, the king of all kings, the son of God. And this Lord, who is the son of God, is the judge of all. For he is the Lord who is seated on the throne of power and is the discerner of the hearts and the motives of men. This is why this is so challenging to those who heard it. This is why this should be challenging to us, because he who is the Messiah, he who is the Lord of lords, he who is seated at the right hand of glory is the one who is the judge of the hearts and the intent and the motives of all people. In other words, he is the one who knows. And he knows this. He knows those who worship him in pretense. And he knows those who worship him in truth. Notice what he says. Notice what he says after. He challenges them on their understanding of Psalm 110. He says, 
Now, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. When Jesus declares himself to be the Lord of Lords, the practical implication of that is that now he sits upon his throne and he judges the hearts and the intents and the motives of all people. He knows those who worship in pretense. There is an approach to God. That is, filled, that, was, that is filled with just that. It is filled with pretense. It is filled with pretend. It is filled with a false show for the sake of appearance. It is filled with the desire to receive the favor of others. And he who knows the heart, he who is Lord of Lords, searches the heart and he knows and he judges rightly. You know, it could be argued, and it should be argued, that nothing is so abhorrent to God in worship as is pretense. As is the putting on of airs. Because biblical true worship of God should be unpretentious. Now understand this morning that nobody, I don't think anybody, let me not say nobody. I would say very few people actually get up in the morning, on Sunday morning, on their way to the congregation and say, hey, let's go pretend. Very, very, very few people. And yet this is often the net result. Why? Because pretense is this. Pretense is not believing what you're seeing. Pretense is not believing what you pray. Pretense is not believing what you confess. Pretense is doing all those things so that others would be impressed. So that others would think well of you. So that others would not know what is actually going on in the heart. Jesus says this is how the the scribes do it. He gives a a, a litany, a a list of of things that, that demonstrate pretense in their living and in their lives before God and others. He says, they array themselves in long robes. Now, you know, as I was going over this list, there's very few times in the scriptures where you just know, okay, Jesus here is really preaching and teaching and examining and instructing preachers. So I'm just going to invite you all in to the circle of preachers. And I know you'll find yourself in there as well. 
because nobody puts on more airs than preachers do. Maybe, may, maybe worship leaders, but that's a different question. <laughs> nobody puts on more airs than preachers do. Notice what Jesus says. They walk around in long robes because they dress the part. They are conspicuous. They are particular in their dress because they want people to identify them as spiritual. They want people to identify them as righteous. They want people to distinguish them from others. You know, this happens, happens far too often. Too often people come to church with the mindset, and, and preachers do it more than anybody, with the mindset of wanting people to pay close attention to how they are dressed so as to distinguish them from the run-of-the-mill, everyday, ordinary layperson. And oftentimes you come up into a church and you can distinguish the preacher just by what he has on. And you can distinguish those who want to identify with the preacher by what they have on as well. Because as the wardrobe of the preacher go, so goes the wardrobe of many. Or maybe even the preacher's wife. And for what ends but the pretense of it all. Beloved, Jesus is, is here reminding us, and this, this should not, do not think that he's only talking to those who tend to dress up in, in church. You can dress down in pretense as well. Everybody in church is dressing up, and so you determine, I'm going to dress down. I'll show them. And so you make yourself particular. You make yourself conspicuous. You make yourself stand out amongst them because you want to demonstrate and show that I am free in Christ to do as I please. And all of it, all of it, all of it for a pretense. Jesus says they walk around in long robes so that people would acknowledge them, that they are dressing the part, and they, get, they look for the greetings in the a marketplace. They look for the greetings. They want the acknowledgments. They want the titles. They want to be known. One week they come and they are pastor. The next week they come and they are bishop. And the next week they come and they are apostle. And all of these titles are, are, are being given unto them. And so finally, when you refer to them, you have to say, well, the right reverend bishop apostle. And you dare not refer to them in any other way. This, all for the sake pretense. You have to have the acknowledgments and, and the greetings. They, they, they desire the best seats and the places of honor. That's the preacher's role. Those are the pastor's seats. I remember when I was a, I was a, when I was a young boy growing up 
in church. There were certain places you didn't sit. There were certain things. There were certain places you did not go. Unless you had the title of right reverend, you could not sit in those seats. You could not go in those areas. And this is what Jesus is saying. For what, for what end are all these things? For what end do you desire to have a seat up front? For what end must your seats and parking spaces be designated by your holy names? Except for show of it all. It says they desire it. They, they walk around in these long robes. They, they desire the greetings in the marketplace. They desire the best seats. And they take advantage of the widows, the weak, as their money schemers. And they're desiring to fill the coffers because they know that at the bottom of the coffer there is a hole. And in the hole is there is his hand. And as you put the money in the coffer, it ends up in his account. Now, Jesus can say all this, beloved, because he is the Lord of lords. He can say all this because he knows the hearts of men and women. He can say all this because he discerns the intentions and the motives. He says, for appearance sake, they offer up long prayers. Long prayers. Because the longer the prayer, the more righteous it appears, the more knowledgeable it appears. So they offer up long prayers, long, eloquent prayers, so that others could say, my, I wish that I could pray like him. My, I wish that I could pray like her. Again, I've been in churches where they, they're, they're dueling deacons because they are dueling prayers. Each trying out, pray one another so as to give the appearance of being more knowledgeable, but more than that, even more spiritual than the others. But long prayers just give away to long songs, right? Long songs that you sing again and again and again and again and again and again. For what? Nothing more than the pretense of thinking that you are going to somehow work up the spirit of God the longer that you sing it so that others may perceive you to be more spiritual in your approach than those who just sing the chorus and the verse once. Long prayers, long songs, long sermons. Oh, beloved, that's again, I invite you in to where the preachers live. God forbid that the man would get up and preach for 25, 15, 20 minutes and the man gets up behind him and preaches for an hour. How much more did the one hour, how much more knowledge than the one who preached for an hour have? How much more spiritual was the one who preached for an hour? It's not the length of the sermons, beloved. It's not the length of the prayers. 
It's not the length of the songs. It's Christ. Do they point you to Jesus? Do they make much of Jesus? Are they showing forth the glory and the majesty of Christ? Are you finding yourself decreasing even as Jesus is increasing in the place, even in your heart? Why? Because pretense gets the greater judgment. Wow. This is... And Jesus is not playing here. This re- reminds us that there are degrees of judgment. There are degrees of punishment. There are degrees in hell, beloved. All sin is going to get punished. But not all sin will receive the same degree of condemnation. James chapter 3 reminds us that those who teach need to beware, for theirs is the greater combination. Again, Jesus here addressing preachers. Those who would teach will receive the greater condemnation, and therefore they need to be all the more careful on how they teach. Jesus elsewhere tells us that to whom much is given, much is required. And the more knowledge that you have received and the greater privilege that you have of sitting under the gospel as it, be, as it is being preached, the greater will be your condemnation for not believing. The greatest condemnation of all is for those who would lead others astray. Those who would take advantage of the weak, take advantage of the poor, take advantage of the less able. Beware of these, Jesus says, for They give off a form of godliness, but they deny the truth and the power and the substance of it. But true godliness is first an inward reality before it ever makes itself an outward demonstration. It's first an inward reality, and this is what Jesus gets to as he addresses the poor widow. As she enters, she gives her small, a bit of money into the offering. There is an approach to God that is not only pretentious, beloved, but there is another approach to God that is in spirit and in truth. And here Jesus on his last day in the temple is not only declaring himself to be the Lord of Lords, but he is here giving demonstration to his disciples of what it means to see false worship and then worship in spirit and in truth. And it is all examined by the one who is able to discern the heart and the motives and the intent of every human being. Notice, notice, and this approach to God is not just a theoretical approach. 
It is real. It is demonstrative. And he knows, he knows the hearts of those who are willing to come to him in humble submission. And unlike the loud pretense of the scribes, notice the quiet humility of the widow. The last thing that Jesus did at the temple before he ended his time was he sat down and he watched people put their money in the offering. The last thing that Jesus did in the temple was he sat down and he watched people put their money in the offering box. Because, beloved, nothing says worship like what you do with your money. The church that I was raised in would often print from week to week the giving on the back of the bulletin. And not just the sum of how much was given, but the names, every name would be in there. And how much you gave, or if your name wasn't in there, you didn't give. How much you gave from week to week, every week. And as a young child, I would go, and there's two things I wanted to see every week. One, I wanted to see who gave the most. And two, I wanted to see if they recorded my quarter. And sure enough, sure enough, there at the bottom, there it was. There was my quarter whenever I had it and didn't spend it to give. The Bible says that as Jesus was there sitting at the table watching people give, many Rich came and gave large sums, large sums. And notice something. That is just a statement that is made. Jesus makes no comment upon the rich who have come and given large sums. Thank God. Thank God he says nothing against the large sums. So if you have large sums, come and give. There will be a plate, an offering, basket that will pass later on this day. And if you have a large sum, give it. Nobody's going to say anything about it. Thank God Jesus didn't condemn the large sums. And what is Jesus looking for? Is he looking for how much money? Nope. He's searching hearts. You get that? Jesus is sitting at the table where they are offering. 
He is not looking at what people put in. He is looking into their hearts. Each one that passes by, the Lord of Lords is not looking at how much they put in. He is examining the motives and the intent of all those who come. Beloved, I, I, I don't know, I do not know how much you give to East Point Church. Now, it wouldn't be hard for me to find out. I know who do know. And so I can go to them and ask. But I do not know how much each individual person and family gives. But I do know who does know. Because every week, he's here. And every time, the offering passes. He's not examining how much you put in. He's examining our hearts and our motives and our intentions, particularly on what we plan to do with what we have left. And notice, notice that he who searches the hearts and always is searching the heart, this poor widow comes and she puts in two small coins what didn't amount to much, less than a penny actually. And no one else probably even noticed her. No one else probably even paid her any attention. In fact, if they were anything like us, and, and, and surely they, they were because the human heart hasn't changed in all of these years. If they're anything like us, they saw her and they probably looked away. And not wanting to draw attention to her, not to make her feel uncomfortable as if we are looking at her because we know that she doesn't have much. And so we turn our gaze and we turn our way, our eyes away from those who don't have much. But not Jesus. He sees her. And he sees what no one else can see. And after she puts her money in, Jesus tells his disciples, Fellas, come check this out. Come check this out. All the time while you guys are impressed with the large sums, all the time when you're trying to figure out how much is Mr. Bigwig going to put in the offering plate, let me tell you who has just put in more than all the others dared to put in. The greatest gift that has come in this day has come from one that you would think the least of. This is because, beloved, we spend our times impressing and being impressed with outward appearances. But God looks upon the heart and he discerns the idols that are there. And here is Christ reminding us once again, God does not despise small things. Though we tend to 
Though we tend to be impressed with the grand things, with the showy things, with the long robes and the big titles and the long prayers and the long sermons and the much giving, none of those impresses God. What impresses God is a heart that is given over and surrendered to him. And so the Bible says that she gave out of her poverty. All these other people had come and they had given out of their surplus. They had given and had plenty to spare. She has given out of her poverty. They gave a portion of what they had. It was a large portion because they have large sums. The Bible says she gave her all. She gave everything she had. The New King James says she gave her whole livelihood. The NIV says she gave all she had to live on. The New Living Translation says she gave everything she had. Listen. To give. To give she would have had to do without something. In order to give, she would have had to go without something. How instructive is that? Because I hear people say from time to time, well, I'm not giving because I don't really have anything to give. We don't have much to give. Beloved, if you have anything, you have something to give. Because if you have anything All giving a little bit will mean is that this week you may have to go without something. But you know in order to do that, you got to have a heart that's set on fire for God. You got to have a heart that has surrendered to Jesus you got to have a heart that is not consumed with idols and your own comforts more than it is with the glory and the majesty and the greatness of Jesus in your life. This is what Jesus is saying. Notice, notice, notice that he doesn't commend her, this woman, for giving a tithe. He's not commending her for giving 10%. He commends her because she gave out of a heart that is surrendered to God. A heart that is surrendered to God is not spending all week calculating what is 10% of how much I have. A heart. 
heart that is surrendered to God is trying to figure out what is the maximum that I can give to the things of Christ. Because of all that he has given to me. You notice something here. This is, this is amazing. You know, this woman isn't coming into this line and she's giving. She's not thinking, I got to sow a seed because I'm going to meet a need. She's not thinking, okay, let's go because money cometh, money cometh, money cometh, money cometh. No, here is a heart that has been moved by God, knowing that the issue is not money. It never is. The issue is the heart. And when the gospel comes, beloved, the gospel comes not addressed to our pocketbooks. The gospel comes addressed to our hearts. And if the gospel makes its way to our hearts, it is a very small trip into our pocketbooks. The gospel hasn't touched our pocketbooks. It's probably because it hasn't really touched our hearts. Jesus says in Mark chapter 6 and verses, Mark chapter 7 and verses 6 through 7 and referring to Isaiah 29 and verse 13, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. The issue is worship. The issue is worship because life is filled with all types of vanity and yet nothing is more destructive in our lives. Than being vain in our worship, Lord. Than being pretentious. Than giving for show. Or even just giving because you think that's what you should do. She desired to honor God with her heart, not in pretense, not for show, not to be seen or even to be known. She did it because her heart was fire, was set on fire by God. This is a heart that is redeemed. This is a heart that is surrendered. This is a heart that finds its identity, its motivation. It's purpose in the cross. This is where Christians get their identity. This is where Christians find their purpose. This is where Christians find their motivation. What is my motivation? My motivation is the cross. Who am I? I am a Christian. I belong to Christ. And that informs everything that I do. I never need to ask, what is my purpose? My purpose is the glory of God. I don't need to sit around and wonder, what is my motivation? My motivation is the cross of Christ. In the cross, I find my boast. 
Because it is the cross by which I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. Beloved, don't, don't, don't get it wrong and don't get it twisted this morning. I am not a judger of your heart. Jesus is. I don't need to know how much you're putting into the plate because Jesus does. I don't need to know the nature of your worship and whether or not it is pretend or real because Jesus does. This morning, I want you to know that he does. He knows. For he is a judge and a discerner of hearts. And he searches, even in the midst of the church, for those hearts that are toward him so that he can show himself mighty on their behalf. He is here this morning discerning our worship discerning and judging our hearts, would we, will we not be found faithful? No other motivation I need, no other boast should I have. And in Christ, his cross, his life, his death, his resurrection is all I have. And all I need to do what I need to do is a knowledge that Jesus is Lord and I am his. And he has died and he's coming to receive me again. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this morning, I confess that your word is is challenging, that it is convicting. And yet, Lord, confess too that it is gloriously comforting to know that you are a judge and a Lord that likes to show himself strong on behalf of his people. So we pray this morning, Lord, we confess our sins of pretension, pretending, and we come seeking to be more faithful, to be more fervent in surrendering our hearts and our lives to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Spirit. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.